0: The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy.
1: So, welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. Numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, what we've got to triage immediately, and then how to prioritize the larger changes. 10 million of California's 33 million residents are immigrants. It's estimated that as many as a third of those immigrants are undocumented or as some other people call them, illegal. And another third are estimated to be naturalized American citizens. The majority of this category hold a bachelor or higher degree. My parents, if they were still alive, would be counted in that population. While nationally, the Trump administration actions have heightened the dilemma at our southern border, they ignore half of illegal entries are through our airports and our current gubernatorial and California primary races have taken the debate to quite a different place. California values, we keep hearing about California values from several of our gubernatorial candidates seem to be code for a celebration of the surrender of assets and identity by citizens for redistribution to the humbled masses gathered at our Southern border a sanctuary state, a focus away from citizens and toward protections for the undocumented. There are a million driver's licenses in California given to illegal um, aliens, (coughs) undocumented people with an estimated population between two and three million of the total estimated 11 million in the United States. So California spends more than any other state on K through 12 education, $66 billion. But we rank 41st in per pupil spending and that's because the ratio of students to tax taxpayers. In other words, there are too many students for not enough taxpayers. We'd have to double that budget to equal what they spend in Florida or California or New York. And I learned last night that we have a local high school in one of our wealthiest Silicon Valley communities that is offering its sophomores a social studies class in income inequality. So the United States of America is the only nation ever conceived on the idea that all men are created equal and entitled to certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Citizenship as Charlie Cook, the author of The Conservatarian Manifesto, says, is the adoption of an identity. Charlie's argument is that immigrants are, and I'm going to quote, expected to move to the United States in order to try to make it more like, are, are not expected to move to the United States in order to try to make this country more like the country they forsook. Charlie Cook is the editor of the National Review Online and co-host of Mad Dogs and Englishmen's podcast, and he's the author of The Conservatarian Manifesto. He's a graduate of the University of Oxford, at which he studied modern history and politics. And Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us this, this, this morning. Are Citizenship implies me? a country with borders. While so much of the media and our politics seems to espouse a return to a 19th century view of give me your tired, your hungry, the wretched refuse, you get my drift. Is there a middle ground between a wide swath of wilderness that needed people to tame it and the 21st century where job skills, education, and adaptability are the bedrock of a growing economy? Do you see a middle ground?
2: Well, I do. I do. And it's worth noting before we get onto that, that America already accepts more immigrants than any other nation. So even if we were to diminish the number of people who can come in legally, uh, it would not be the case that America was slamming its doors shut, as some of the rhetoric would suggest. It would still be uh, that America was Remarkably inviting um, and would still be very much a, a nation of immigrants. Um, the, the big two questions in this debate uh, are not, as they're often cast, um, whether we should have immigration um, or not. Um, but how many immigrants should the United States have and uh, what should be the criteria for accepting them? And in my experience, Americans are uh, somewhat shocked, not by how many immigrants come in, although there there is some feeling in the country that we should diminish that uh, a bit. The the levels have got very high recently. Um, uh, But people are shocked by the means by which people enter. Um, And I don't mean by that whether they come to an airport or a border, but they're shocked to learn that up to 90% of immigrants Uh, come in because they have a family member here already, um, rather than because they have a particular skill. Uh, There is widespread um, acceptance, even love, in America for the idea that people should come here um, from other places, and there is widespread acceptance of the idea that it is good for America to have the best people from other countries come in. There's also acceptance that you don't just want people with PhDs here and that there are as a place for bringing in um, those who want to improve their lives, whether they have skills or not. But it does seem to be the case that the the ratio is off. And I think the first thing to note is always that if you have a situation in which 90% of people come in to America, not because they have particular skills or they've been chosen in a particular way, but because someone else in their family has already got in, then you have a system that is quite irrational. And to try to change that, to want to change that, is in no way to advocate slamming the door or to change America from being the country that accepts more aggressive than anywhere else.
1: No, I would agree with that. So, so how, would you, um, how would you propose um, that we... I mean, one of the issues being, and you brought to, to a, to the, um, into your comments, there are three issues. One is, uh, how many people can we absorb? Two is, what's the ratio of people who come here because they have skills to people who come here um, without those skills? And, and, and how do we determine, how do we, what happens to us as a nation if we, um, if we have a system of immigration that favors somebody who got here before you okay and favors uh, and, and, and allows open borders at the expense of skills and assimil- and the capability to assimilate
2: right right well look I think I think that the common ground is found in two key areas. first one is we all have to agree in order to find a common ground, we all have to agree that a country gets to decide who comes in, but that is the very definition of a nation. And also, that the people of the existing polity, the people inside the country, get to determine the rules that govern who joins them. Once you've established that, you can argue all day about how many people should come in and how we should select them. One of the problems at the moment, however, is it's difficult to find any common ground because increasingly, the Democratic Party and the progressive left has decided that borders are a problem, that it is in some way illegitimate or even racist to want to enforce borders. And I think until we can meet on those terms, that there is a debate to be had, but it has to start with an acceptance that it is legitimate to debate this. Until that happens, it's going to be difficult to find common ground. But I think that once we get there it won't be too hard to take some of the sting out of this because there is a broad consensus in America uh, that says uh, people should not break into the country, whether that means coming over the border, whether that's the Canadian border or the, uh, the southern border, um, or through an airport and then illegally overstaying one's visa, um, that it is good for America to have all sorts of people, but that a, a balance that favors um, family reunification over skills to the extent that ours does doesn't make a great deal of sense in a 21st century economy. It's one of the only times, odd, in which progressives harken back to 19th century rural times. In every other circumstance, they say, look, we've moved on. We're not that country anymore. Even when it comes to upholding the Constitution, we're told it's out of date. But our immigration policy, it's for some reason to have been set by Emma Lazarus when Uh, in the tablet near the Statue of Liberty. It's an odd way of looking at it in a skills economy.
1: And we'll be back with Charles Cook to explore that gap between the way we look backward at immigration and forward at a world of artificial intelligence.
0: For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM. The answer.
1: Charlie Cook is the editor of the National Review Online, and he's the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. And Charles, now we can go on.
2: So I think that that those are the two big challenges. And then there is going to be a debate um, over how many people come in. There is a big difference in our world now uh, compared to, say, the world of 110, 120 years ago. And it's not just... uh, the difference of skills, but it's also the the role that government plays. Um, it is not irrational for people to have doubts um, about allowing huge numbers of people in when the government is extremely powerful, when we have a large welfare system, um, and to be candid, when one of the major parties in the United States likes to tell the other one that immigration is going to lead to its destruction. I thought for a long time it is entirely irrational to care what somebody's skin color is. It is where they're from. Who cares? Unless someone says, if we let people in from these places, you and everything you believe in will be destroyed. At that point, it actually becomes quite rational to care about it. So I think that tendency also doesn't have a place uh, within our immigration debate. But other than that, I don't see this as being entirely intractable because there is a lot of common ground here. It just doesn't seem to make it into our
1: debate. I I think that's very true. But I think there is another point, um, and that point is economic, where immigration has traditionally been a source of economic growth. Um, if we hearken back to the Democratic Party's current idea toward open borders, um, the increasing influx of uh, semi-literate and under-educated Central Americans. I mean, the United States cannot take in the entire population of Central America. Um, So what do we do? It's not building a wall, but how do we change the system so that people who have a rational claim for asylum, for example, have a way to apply from their home countries in the way that you did and the way that my parents did uh, by going to an embassy and making an application. And wouldn't in fact, that approach give us a more rational basis upon which to make decisions about whether or not that person really should be entitled to um, a grant of refugee status or asylum.
2: Yes. and Not only do I think that it's desirable to change the system to ensure that people who need to be here because they're under threat in their uh, home countries, nor, nor do I think it's desirable to do that. I also think it's necessary. and I'll tell you why. Um, because uh, at the moment, the lax attitude toward people who are not in that position, um, who have chosen to break into the country and to stay here illegally um, without having... Uh, an exceptionally good reason to do so. Uh, the attitude that we have towards those people hurts those people who genuinely need to come in. Um, to, if we could draw a much firmer line, I think we would do better off. Uh, we would do those people better off. Um, but again, the, the, the common ground point I think is important here because we, we don't have a, a huge amount of disagreement on the question of refugees. Um, the... Uh, There are not many people um, who who genuinely fit that description. As a percentage of those coming in, um, it is extremely low. America should always be a refuge for those people. Um, But within the the immigration debate, um, they barely factor. The the problem is, I think, and and, and I feel like a partisan today, I'm... I'm, I'm, (laughs) I try not to be a a partisan, but on this question, I think I am one because the, the, the problem we're facing in our debate is that the Democratic Party has got into the habit of casting every single person who wants to come to the United States as some sort of refugee and their home country as some sort of basket case. And that is, of course, not true. There is a big, big difference between people who are being chased by gangs, people who are leaving an island that has been destroyed by a hurricane people who are leaving religious persecution or leaving a dictatorship, and people who are from a place that is poor and want to do better. It is totally understandable that people who are from poor countries who aren't doing so well would want to live in America, of course they do. I also wanted to live in America, and I was not from a hellhole. I was from England. Um, But we cannot, as you say, just open the floodgates. So drawing these distinctions is important, and we are we are losing the ability to debate this properly because everyone is being painted with the same brush um, by an increasingly radicalized progressive left that believes that it is it is immoral to draw lines around your country and say these laws and these rules apply to us and us alone
1: well and and that's especially if you want to think of the states as a um as a basket of uh, in the laboratory for experimentation here in California. If you look at the gubernatorial contest, um, it is aimed at, the Democrats are aimed at soliciting the votes of people who are um, in one of those classes of immigration. In other words, they're naturalized citizens, but more likely they are the children of illegal um, immigrants uh, or the siblings of DACA recipients. Um, and, and so it, it's become a dividing line in California that, you know, we have what we call, quote, California values. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the laboratory, it's, it's destroying the existing citizenry in the middle class. And and yeah, that's I mean, not a it's not a long term issue. It's an immediate fact.
2: Yeah, well, this has always been um, true, the, the the idea that immigration becomes quickly politicized and provides perverse incentives. It was it was a big issue in the late 18th century. It became a big issue in 1800. Thomas Jefferson changed his mind, having. Been somewhat restrictionist in his tone in the notes on the state of Virginia in 1784. And by 1800, he's criticizing Hamilton for taking that position. And he, he sounds like an open borders type, um, because he saw that there was a political advantage in it. But where there is a massive difference now, as you intimated, um, is that we live in a country in which skills are more and more important than ever, in which agricultural and industrial labor have lost um, most of their clout and the demand for them has been greatly diminished. And also in which we have a system of transfers. We take money from person A and we give it to person B. We do it in a lot of different ways. We don't give everyone checks or Medicaid. Um, Sometimes we allow people who aren't part of the polity to take up places in our schools, but that costs money. And it also raises the cost of housing and it puts pressure on the road and so on and so forth. And these things were not true in the same way um, uh, in the past. And I think especially given that California, I mean, partly it's geographical, but it's also political, uh, especially given a place like California has made itself such a haven. I mean, and again, that's not a, uh, that, that's not a hyperbole. It, the, the governor has described the place as a sanctuary, um, Uh, given that california has made itself such a haven um there are going to be people who lose in that
1: you're absolutely right charles what's at stake is the multi-generational middle class in california and and if we can take a quick commercial break we can come back and talk about how that laboratory becomes illustrative of what will happen to the larger country if we don't find a way, a compromise between um, the extreme positions that you um, uh, uh, alluded to in the early part of this conversation. And we're going to take a quick commercial interruption, and we'll be back with Reimagine America to talk with Charlie Cook for just a couple more minutes.
0: For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer.
1: We're back with Charlie Cook, uh, the uh, director of the online national review and the author of The Conservatarian Manifesto. And when we went to break, Charlie was making the important point that among the things we need to consider when we talk about California's view of uh, open borders, et cetera, is the cost to our educational system in terms of dollars that are not contributed uh, to the education of our children, of, of the children of citizens and um, legal immigrants. And in California, of our $66 billion education budget, um, the most current year, we are spending $14 billion dollars or nearly uh, 27% of that money on um, education for the children of um, illegal aliens and um, and the children of illegal aliens and also um, the special educational needs we, they have when we have to give them English immersion training. And that's money that's, not going into after school activities and um, and uh, technology training for the children, the, the very people that we have urged to come here because of their skills, which means that they, they will be at a disadvantage as they age out of our K through 12 system
2: well i think I think this is one of the problems with the way in which some people see this question is is that they see it as a, as a, as a fundamentally a question of redistribution um and 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 it, you all uh, politicians will never say this, but you all hear people say that California was stolen in the first place, and then Central Americans are taking it back um uh, when you start going down that road, then that doesn't sound like a huge cost. all the people in question are poor or they're from a poor place. their parents are poor, and so we'll just give them the money and, and we'll um we'll we'll help them but you know as you suggested the as regards my my points about having an American identity um I think it does matter um the the, the integrity of a nation. I think your skin color matters not at all. I think your religion matters not at all. I think where you're from in the first place matters not at all. But I think how you arrived here and what your intentions were matter an enormous amount, especially in a nation such as this one, which is built upon a creed, not upon a particular tribe. And... I think that if we start devolving into the idea that um, we're all just one in the world and that nation-states are expendable, then we will lose what it is that is great about the United States, which is the ideas upon which it's built. But more than that, will also cause an awful lot of resentment from people who don't care about skin color, who aren't made angry when they hear somebody speaking another language, Um, but who think that they signed up for a social contract that is being broken or hijacked or undermined. Um, And the school system is a good example of that. Um, There are very few people in this country, however socially conservative or fiscally conservative they are, who are against public schools per se. Um, Most people think that there is some general obligation to provide education for people who can't afford it but that's not an open-ended offer uh, that is an offer that exists within one place uh, and I think that uh, I think we're going to see increasing irritation uh, if it is the case that people who elect to go to a country without having gone through the, uh, the requisite process um, just expect uh, that their needs will be taken care of and that unfortunately is where california um seems to be at the moment uh
1: and and i think you're right and and in then we layer onto it at the other end um an incredible uh wealth of, of foreign talent coming into the technology industry um and bringing their families or creating families here uh, who will expect their own children to be able to have the same, a better level of skill and adaptability that they than they have, um, and and in most cases, um, our school system will not be able to give them that if it's also um, absorbing a, a disproportionate number of people at the. Who need more than just re- just English remediation? Um, yeah. I mean, you, you, you hit you hit
2: here on, on another interesting point about California, and and this has been driven in part by immigration, but it's not solely um, be driven by immigration. Um, and and that is the the slow destruction of the middle class. And it, it's not the case. You wouldn't know this watching MSNBC, but it's not the case that California is divided in two with white people on the top and then immigrants and brown people on the bottom. In fact. Um, an awful lot of the people who've done the best, the great success stories, people who are living the American dream in California, people who ought to be looked up to and admired are from all over the world. It is a place people want to move to. Silicon Valley is a good example, so is Hollywood. Um, and, and actually so is the Central Valley, a lot of the people putting in the, the uh, technological underpinnings of the agricultural boon there um, are from all over the place. And, and good luck to them, that's what America is for. Um, what the, the what the problem is is rather that you, you're you're creating in that state a system in which all of those people are at one level, and then there's this big hole in the middle, and then on the bottom there are an awful lot of people who are poor and and undereducated, um and and on some sort of public assistance. It, it's uh, not a slur uh, against them to note that, but it, there are so many people on MediCal that it can barely provide um, its services. Uh, and that is not the sort of society that you want to build. And the, the, you know, the reason that that's important is that um, public policy is supposed to be geared to managing trade-offs. And when it comes to immigration, there will always be trade-offs. But if you've decided, as California's politicians had, and you mentioned this earlier, this insipid phrase, California values, if you've decided that you can never, ever Restrict or limit or question immigration, even if you're doing so because you want to, for example, bolster the middle class or keep the budget under control or make sure that the education system is working. Once you've decided that, it's actually almost impossible to have a conversation about how best to allocate resources and 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 uh, you know create policy for a state. And I fear that's where California has reached. That um, in the public imagination, there are two sorts of people: there are the open, loving, helpful friendly people who will brook no opposition to um, their California values, so-called. And then there are the backward, knuckle-dragging people who are worried that those around them speak Spanish or have brown skin. And no one is really noticing that it's people of all races in the middle class who are suffering um, and, and that, that their downturn in recent years is being exacerbated by, by bad policy and that it's entirely reasonable for them to object.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. And there are quite a number of those people and they're called multi-generational Californians. And among yeah. them are Hispanics and Chinese and Japanese, etc. I mean, this is not a black-white issue. Um, and, but, but where? I mean, you know, I don't want to leave our audience um, as we close um, our conversation with a sense that it's all doom and gloom. But. Um, What, you know, are there small, you know, short of the uh, trade-off between DACA and building the wall, the wall that will never be built, um, what what are some small steps that we can take that the people listening to this program can begin to take and can consider in deciding who they're going to vote for that would help us to move away from that precipice where the middle class just disappears in California and as a laboratory in the United States.
2: Well, I am quite hopeful, and I'll tell you why. I, I think that um, it, it, the great tragedy of Donald Trump, or one of them, uh, is that he is in some ways closer to the center ground on on the question of immigration uh, and the middle class than an awful lot of politicians in America um, have been. Um, and that is to his credit. Unfortunately, he also has a lot of views and a lot of tendencies that are pretty destructive and in some cases are extreme. And so although he's managed to tap into uh, some frustration, he sometimes ruins it. Uh, his, his untempered rhetoric and, and some of his retrograde attitudes, I think, have um, have made it quite difficult. But I, I'm not sure that that will always be the case. I think that there is a rising crop of politicians who understand this issue well, um, who don't have Trump successes, but have looked uh, at him and have realized, look, um, he, he noticed something within the body politic that others had not. Um, and I think when, well, however long it takes, I think when they come to the fore, I think this conversation will be easier to have. Um, and it will be much, much, much more difficult um, for those who really do just think we should have no immigration rules at all, to cast those who disagree with them as being uh, anti-deluvian. Um, in terms of how to uh, talk about this, uh, I mean, I, I I wrote this in my book that that I genuinely don't care where you're from. I, I mean, I have a Malaysian brother-in-law, my um, cousin, who was effectively my sister growing up, was from Malawi. It never really crossed my mind that anyone would care about that. Um, but certainly I think it is reasonable to care about the plight of the middle class and I think it's uh, reasonable to care about the integrity of the law and to care about having a cohesive society and I would fixate more on those questions um, than than on um, where immigrants are from or even on criticizing, for, on criticizing people who quite understandably want a better life. It, it, the, 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 a harder line immigration policy should always be um, adopted more in sorrow than anger. Of course, it is going to be upsetting for people who would like to live in America that they're not able to. Um, we shouldn't pretend that that, that that isn't the case. But that also doesn't mean that we have to do whatever those who arrive at the border want. Um, and I, I think, I think slowly but surely, um, the Republican Party and the center-right coalition is arriving. Uh, uh, quite a quite a good place at the same point as, as the left is losing its mind,
1: and and I think that is a really good place for us to leave this conversation. Our thanks to Charlie Cook the online editor of the National Review and the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. And you'll find a link to the um, Amazon site where you can buy the Conservatarian Manifesto uh, in the uh, podcast version on the Reimagine America radio page. Thanks again, Charles. I really appreciate your time and your insight.
0: Thanks for having me. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org reimagineamerica.org. Now back to reimagine America on 860 AM. The answer.
1: And we are back with yet another guest this Sunday morning. And that is Phelim McLear, the author of an interesting new um, play called The $18 Billion Prize. Now, I'm sure that some of you listening remember a number of years back a lawsuit against Chevron brought on behalf of um, Amazon uh, Aborigines um, by the governments of uh, the government of Ecuador and um, at one point uh, the governor, uh, the government of Brazil. And if you didn't know how that lawsuit finally came out, then. The $18 billion prize is where you're going to get to the ending of that story. And our guest uh, today is Philip McLaire, the man who wrote the play. And he wrote the play from the transcript of a trial. Yes, indeed. It is serious stuff to watch and to listen and it's entertaining as well and the 18 billion dollar prize was the outcome of a lawsuit first it was won against our friends at chevron and then we're going to tell you briefly about the so-called environmental movement and its handmaiden corrupt government as a way to extort major multinational corporations. And film, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And why don't you tell us a little about how you came to write the $18 billion prize? When did you become aware of this problem? And then how did you write the play? Um, And what's your What's your intent? It, it's not um, its not a light comedy. So uh, what, what was the intent behind the play?
3: Well, funny, the play is very, very funny because it's okay. about a food, uh, and it's about eco-celebrities going crazy in the jungle and the sexual shenanigans they get up to. Uh, there's a lot of humor in it because, you know, it's, 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 tragedy is very close to farce, and there's a lot of farce when people... Go to the jungle, and I don't think the cameras are watching, or anyone else is watching. What really attracted me to this was, you know, this this lawyer. There, it wasn't the government of Brazil or or Ecuador that was suing Chevron. It was a New York lawyer, on you know, allegedly on behalf of natives. It was, that was nonsense. He was chancing his arm. He wanted to attack an oil company. He wanted to make a lot of money too. He stood to gain one point three billion dollars. Uh, you know, but he also he's a true believer. He was a college with Obama. Uh, he's a leftist environmentalist, Stephen Donziger, from New York. And uh, they got an $18 billion judgment against Chevron in an Ecuadorian court. It was the biggest civil judgment ever, uh, record-making amounts of money. Uh, but then Chevron decided to fight back, and lo and behold, it turns out they they took the to court, they got documents, they got a footage of a documentary that each shot, 700 hours of outtakes. Turns out he bribed the judge, turns out he bribed independent experts, turns out he bribed court officials. A judge, 500,000. It was so egregious, so egregious that Chevron were able to sue him under RICO conspiracy. They normally RICO is, is, you know, RICO is normally mobster and mafia, but there's a civil RICO. If you're, you think you're the victim of a criminal conspiracy in a civil case, you can sue under the RICO legislation. They sued him under the RICO legislation in New York. They won the case. Donziger's banned from enforcing this, this fake judgment. Uh, they appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court upheld it. He can't enforce it. It's based on fraud. Uh, it's the dark side of the environmental movement. It's the dark side of these lawsuits that the media so slavishly cover and promote that whenever they turn bad and turn sour, the media just walk away.
1: And. And talk a little about, and you're absolutely right, it's it's um, it's a seriously, uh, it is a serious play. In other words, um, my impression was I had to pay attention every minute, but there are moments of real humor, and that real humor points out that the Aborigines were just a vehicle in this entire lawsuit, um, that had it not, had, had Chevron not decided to pay uh, to uh, fight back, um, that those Aborigines would be in no different position today vis-a-vis the government of Ecuador than they were then. It it was just as you say, it was a fraud. It was a fraud yeah, against a the fraud. deepest pockets.
3: Yeah, it was a complete fraud. You know, the advantage of suing an oil company with lots of money and suing an oil company because we don't like oil companies. You know, there was a state-run oil company operating in the area for 20 years, causing all any pollution that was there. They never sued them because that's the government-run company, and they didn't want to do that. It's far better to sue the American company because uh, everyone thinks that's a great idea. So, you know, this this was this is fraud. But then you have Mia Farrow going, getting paid 180,000 to 10 to support them. Danny Glover, Sting, Trudy Styler, his wife, misbehaving in the jungle. Just general bad behavior, uh, but it's all uh, underlined and underpinned by a fraud. So, I've done the play. You know, I do specialize in a thing called verbatim theater, where I take actual court documents and actual court testimony, and uh, do a play you know, based only on the court documents. So this is this is almost completely verbatim. Every word you'll hear in the in the court scenes was actually said at the court. It's eye opening. It's shocking. It's funny. Uh, it's very, very serious too, but, you know, people need to see this. So that's why I decided to put the play on in San Francisco. That's where Amazon watches is based. That's where Chevron is based. Lots of people have interest there. It's all in the Phoenix Theater on Mason Street. It's on uh, it closes last day, of Sunday, so you, time is running out last day. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, I think it's an important thing. You can get more details at chevronplay.com. dot com. You know that's that's where a lot of the information, a lot of the background is. That's where I'm cried for because the theatre, the theatrical establishment don't want to support this. I couldn't get a single publicist in the whole of San Francisco to work at the play. I couldn't get a single lighting designer. One of the actors walked out during rehearsals. People are refusing to review it. It's basically there's a boycott on it because you know the, the the liberal left that dominates the theatrical world don't want don't want the twist to be told. They want to continue to cover up, well, not that's when I'm around.
1: I think you're absolutely right. We're talking to Philem McLaren, who's the author of the eight, $18 billion prize, and we'll be back in just a moment with a few closing thoughts with Philem.
0: For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America eight sixty AM, the answer.
1: We're back at the Reimagine America Radio Hour with our guest Phelan McLaire, who is the author of the eighteen billion dollar prize, the fraud perpetrated against Chevron um, by the governor by the government of Ecuador and. The, United St- the American environmental movement. It's a question of extortion. I had the pleasure of seeing the play about two weeks ago. It's riveting. To say it's great theater is an understatement. It is absolutely riveting. It's beautifully written. It's incredibly craftily presented. It has moments of high drama and moments of great humor. Um, And it makes clear that the poor aborigines in the Amazon were nothing more than the playthings of the environmental movement, the extortionist lawyers that represent it, and Hollywood's left-wing movie stars. And that does not mean that I am not absolutely... An environmentally conscious human being or that I don't want to live in a clean world, but I want to live in a clean world that's fair and sane and understands the role of government and business in servicing those aborigines and film. The floor is yours. Tell us more about the play. Um, And if you want information about the play, go to chevronplay.com. Yeah,
3: I mean, I'd love to see people come see the play. Or you can buy the script at ChevronPlay.com. Uh, you can buy Stephen Donziger, the, the corrupt environmentalist. You can buy his, his, his private diary where he reveals the whole fraud. Chevron were are able to seize it when they subpoenaed his documents. Uh, so there's lots of great stuff there, lots of great fun, uh very serious, too. You know, it's a serious case. Uh, I think we need to call the media to account and say, you covered this when the outrageous allegations were made. Now the case has collapsed. Why aren't you coming
1: in? And I think you're absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today, is that, like you, I don't understand. I very clearly remember reading in such liberal media as the Wall Street Journal uh, about the lawsuit itself, but I never read a word about what happened thereafter. And and you're absolutely right that the the media needs to be called to account.
3: Yeah, I mean that, that that's a big part of the scandal and a big part of the reason I wrote this play, uh, you know. And, and they don't like it, you know, when you, when you confront them with the truth, as I say, you know, no lighting designer in San Francisco work with me, no no publicist, the actors, right? I think will get actors. One walked out during rehearsals because of politics. You know, that's that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, I need people's support. So, you know, we need to stand against the, 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 the theatrical establishment, stop the cover-up. So go to chevronplay.com and, and do what you can.
1: And we appreciate you taking the time out of your afternoon to speak with the audience. Um, and if you've got nothing to do on Sunday afternoon, no big plans, I would urge you to go immediately to chevronplay.com and get tickets for this closing weekend of the $18 billion prize. And if you can't go, then go and read and, and, and get a copy of the script and read it for yourself. You'll find it's well worth your time and and your money. And Phil, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Thanks, Joyce. All the best. All right. Thank you. You too. And in closing up the show for today, as always, I appreciate your time and your attention. And I hope you found uh, Charles Cook and uh, Phil McLear uh, interesting guests and that this was valuable time for you. And next week we'll have a, second conversation with Robert Pearl about mistreatment and the American healthcare system. Until then, have a wonderful day and a successful week. And thank you for your time and attention.
0: This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.